Happy Monday and welcome back to another exciting episode of the Apollo 13 Minute, where each and every day, Monday through Friday, we go over one minute of probably the greatest space history movie ever made, the 1995 Ron Howard-directed feature, Apollo 13. I'm one of your hosts, Jim O'Kane of TVDads.com, and normally at this point, Chris Henry will join me, but uh, Chris is on assignment at the Experimental Aircrafts Association's Air Ventures 2018, where he and 500,000 of his best friends are getting together at what is for this week the uh, busiest airport in the world to celebrate aviation and astronautics. So I'm sure Chris is having a good time. And uh, what we're going to do today is a little bit different than how we normally handle uh, one minute of the movie. This is Minute 21, where uh, Deke Slayton informs Jim Lovell that Charlie Duke has the measles. And as a result, Ken Mattingly is not going to be able to go on the flight. But rather than talk uh, about that minute, I'm going to go back to last week where we talked with Eric Lindbergh, uh, the grandson of Charles Lindbergh, and a letter from Charles Lindbergh that he wrote to Life magazine in 1969, just after the launch of Jim Lovell's first mission to the moon, Apollo 8. Uh, It's an interesting read. It gets a little bit cosmological in nature, but it's an interesting discussion of what Charles Lindbergh saw when he saw three men head for the moon for the first time. So uh, let me read that to you. Again, this is a letter from Charles Lindbergh. Aviation and astronautics were once my prime interest. As a student pilot at the age of 20, when aviation was much more dangerous than it is today, I concluded that if I could fly for 10 years before being killed in a crash, I would be willing to trade an ordinary lifetime for that experience. In the 1930s, I assisted Robert Goddard, the father of spatial conquests. Standing with him on New Mexico plains at the foot of his converted windmill launching tower, it seemed to me that the greatest adventure man could have would be to travel out through space. What motivates man to great adventures? I wonder how accurately these motives can be analyzed, even by the participants themselves. When I think of my own flights on the early years of aviation, I realized that my motives were as obvious, as subtle, and as intermixed as the waves on the oceans I flew over. But I can say quite definitely that they sprang more from intuition than from rationality, and that the love of flying outweighed practical purposes, important as the latter often were. For instance, I believed that a non-stop flight between New York and Paris would advance aviation's progress and add to my prestige as a pilot with ensuring material rewards. In seeking financial backing for that 1927 flight, I argued that it would bring closer the golden era of transport I felt was bound to come. But without my love of flying and adventure and motives I cannot even now discern clearly, it was a flight I would never have attempted. Then, as the art of flying transposed into a science, I found my interest in airplanes decreasing. Rationally, I welcomed the advance that came with self-starters, closed cockpits, radio and automatic pilots. Intuitively, I felt revolted by them, for they upset the balance between the intellect and senses that had made my profession such a joy. And so, as intuition had led me into aviation in the first place, it led me back to an early boyhood interest, the contemplation of life. Gradually, I diverted hours from aviation into biological research. How mechanical, how mystical was man? Could longevity be extended? Was death an unavoidable portion of 
life cycle? Or might physical immortality be achieved through scientific methods? What would be the result of artificially perfusing a head severed from its body? This question especially intrigued me and resulted in my working intermittently for several years in the Department of Experimental Surgery of the Rockefeller Institute for Medical Research. There, in collaboration with the great surgeon Alexis Carroll, he developing the operative techniques and I the design of equipment, I constructed an apparatus that for the first time could pump synthetic blood through organs without the entrance of infection. To me, my years at the Rockefeller Institute involved great adventures. They convinced me that the cycle of life and death is essential to life's progress and that physical immortality would be undesirable even if it could be achieved. I found the mechanics of life less interesting than the mystical qualities they manifest. With these conclusions, I began studying supersensory phenomenon and in 1937 flew to India in the hope of gaining insight to yogic practices. But the approach and explosion of World War II immersed me in military aviation and international politics. Man's fundamental need of survival, both for the individual and the group, separated me from projects I would have carried out in peaceful times. After our fighting war was over, I had worked on the production of bombers and fighters and flown 50 combat missions with the Army Air Force and the Marines. The Cold War with Russia held me to militarily oriented tasks, the study of new weapons, the reorganization of the Strategic Air Command, the essential need of developing intercontinental ballistic missiles. I served for seven years as a member of scientific ballistic missile committees, first under the Air Force and then under the Department of Defense. At the end of this time, with Atlases and Titans in position, with Minutemen coming and Polaris submarines underway, I felt our United States had achieved the indestructible power to destroy any enemy who might attack. But I had become alarmed about the effect our civilization was having on continents and islands my military missions took me over. The slashed forests, the eroded mountains, the disappearing wilderness and wildlife. I believed some of these policies we were following to ensure our near future strength and survival were likely to lead our, to our distant future weaknesses and destruction. Also, I was tired of windowless briefing rooms, Pentagon corridors, and the drabness of standardized air bases. I wanted to regain contact with the mystery and beauty of nature. I resigned from the Ballistic Missile Committee and declined a position in the new civil agency being set up for the development of space. I decided to study environments, peoples, and ways of life in various areas of the world. To make this possible, I returned to my previous position of consultant to Pan-American World Airways. Wilderness expeditions in Africa, Eurasia, and the American continent brought me to an appreciation of nature's extraordinary wisdom. I found myself in the fascinating position of moving back and forth between the ultra-civilized on the one hand and the ultra-primitive on the other with a resulting clarity of perspective on areas between, a perspective that drove into my bones as well as into my mind the fact that instinct rather than intellect is manifest in the cosmic plan of life. Then a few months ago, I received an invitation from Apollo 8's astronauts to attend the launching of their mission to orbit the moon. This plunged me back into astronautics 
as World War II had plunged me back into aviation, though for a period of days instead of years. I was literally hypnotized by the launching. I have spent most of a lifetime in close contact with test flying and man-controlled power, but I had never experienced anything to compare to the mission of Apollo 8. Three miles away from the pad, where I stood watching with the Free From Duty astronauts, the size of the rocket still seemed huge. When ignition came, clouds of smoke and flame churned like a storm's convulsions, and when the sound wave struck me, I shook with the Earth itself. Above that flashing, billowing chaos, the prow of the rocket rose. In it, I visualized the three men I had lunched with hours before, strapped into position like test pilots, tensed to emergency procedures, and to the dials of the instruments they watched, men actually launched on a voyage to the moon. For a moment, reality and memory contorted, and Robert Goddard stood watching at my side. Was he now the dream? The dream, the reality? During the first seconds of the Apollo's inching upward, my sensation was intensified by a vision of the last launching I had witnessed, that of a big military missile, which rose three or four feet, faltered, and then crumpled into an explosion, an explosion seemingly less violent than that smothering the whole aft end of the Apollo. My body staggered with the rocket's effort to lift above its tower, relaxed as it leapt upward and into the air, thrilled as the ball of fire with its astronauts diminished in the vastness of space. Here, after epic measured trials of evolution, Earth's life was voyaging to another celestial body. Here, one saw our civilization flowering toward the stars. Here, modern man had been rewarded for his confidence in science and technology. Soon, he would be orbiting the moon. Talking to astronauts and engineers, I felt an almost overwhelming desire to re-enter the fields of astronautics. With their scientific committees, laboratories, factories, and blockhouses, possibly to voyage into space myself, but I know I will not return to them, despite limitless possibilities for invention, exploration, and adventure. Why not? Decades spent in contact with science and its vehicles have directed my mind and senses to areas beyond their reach. I now see scientific accomplishment as a path, not an end, a path leading to and disappearing in mystery. Science, in fact, forms many paths, branching from the trunk of human progress, and on every periphery, they end in the miraculous. Following these paths far enough and long enough, one must eventually conclude that science itself is a miracle, like the awareness of man arising from and then disappearing in the apparent nothingness of space. Rather than nullifying religion and proving that, quote, God is dead, science enhances spiritual values by revealing the magnitude and the minitude from the cosmos to the atom through which man extends and of which he is composed. 42 years ago, bucking a headwind on a flight in my monoplane between New York and St. Louis, I tried to look into the future beyond man's conquest of the air. As the wheel had opened land to modern travel and the hull the sea, wings had opened the relatively universal sky. Only space lay beyond. Could we ever extend our travels into space? If so, 
It seemed we must develop rockets and their jet propulsion. Such dreaming and reasoning brought me in contact with physicists, chemists, and engineers in the explosives industry, and eventually with Robert Goddard. Who then could foretell that as soon as 1968, men would hurtle around the moon and back? Tomorrow we have an exceptional guest who played an intrinsic part in the Apollo 13 saga. Please join us tomorrow. Uh, if you haven't caught up with previous episodes, we are always available online at Apollo13minute.com. You can read uh, summaries of each minute and uh, download those minutes. You can also find us on iTunes and Google Play. If you'd like to reach out to us, we are always available on social media, on Twitter, Apollo13minute, on Facebook, the Apollo 13 Minute Mission Control. Looks like we're coming up on loss of signal in 30 seconds. We will catch you on the other side tomorrow here on the Apollo 13 Minute.